How's everybody doing? How's your summer going? Pretty good? Pretty good? All right. Well, all right. I hope everybody will come out tonight to our cookout. If obviously, if it's if there's lightning popping, we're not going to put anybody in harm's way. Just check the social media page. We'll make that very clear to you. But hopefully, it will be just fine, and we will do that tonight and have a great time. Well, we are now in week three of our series, Conversations. And last week, we took a little break for Father's Day. Didn't my wife, Kathy, do a great job bringing the word? Appreciate her. Yeah. But this week, we're going to deal with and address three more of your questions. If you're a guest, people wrote in a couple months ago questions about the Bible, about life, and different things, and we're going to dive into three more of those questions, and my goal was to hit all of them. Not going to happen. I wish I could. I might, really, I was, I was going to try to hit them all, but it would be an injustice to them if I tried to do that, and an injustice to your time if we go way too long. So we're going to hit three of those, and really, we're going to concentrate on just one. And the question that you asked that we're going to concentrate on is, Look on the board, is the Bible the authentic, infallible, or error-free word of God? Is the Bible the authentic, infallible word of God? Now, we had some, some funny videos with this, with, with Cody down the street. We had some technical issues with that in the earlier service, and uh, they did not render correctly. So I apologize, we don't have Cody this week. Oh, yes, I, I did that in the first service while I was waiting for the video to play. So anyway, it didn't happen. So we're going to move right along, and I want to make a statement. I want to get your reaction to this statement. Humanity desperately needs absolute truth, a standard to live by. Humanity desperately needs absolute truth, a standard to live by. Absolute truth means it is true no matter what culture I live in, no matter what place on earth that I live in, no matter what time period that I'm from, it is true, no matter what. That's absolute truth. It's a standard to live by. How many would agree with that statement? About half of you. I need to have an altar call real quickly. It was interesting on the video Cody asked the question, and none of the people were ready to admit that or to talk about that or to go that far. They talk about a good book. They talk about Jesus as a good man and a prophet, but nobody went so far as to say, yes, it is absolute truth. And you may be a believer, a Christian here, and you're not quite there either. And that's okay. Well, we're going to talk about that today. Now, a standard, look on the board, a standard is established by authority and is always consistent and true. Now, I want to illustrate the importance to you of having a standard. I'm going to embarrass some folks. No, I won't. I'm just going to beat you over the head with this piece of wood. No. How many? <laughs> Roxy, I want you to do something for me. I want you to guess how long that is. 12 inches, all right, without telling anybody. Are you right? Yeah. Okay. 
Look. I, you weren't supposed to say anything. <laughs> the actual measurement was 13 and 3 sixteenths. I did that because I don't think anybody would guess that. And if you had guessed it right on, it would ruin my illustration. So I had Doug cut this exactly the way I wanted it. But here's the point. This is 13 and 3 sixteenths in Canton, Georgia. It's 13 and 3 sixteenths in Australia. It's 13 and 3 sixteenths in Russia. Antarctica, I don't know why you'd be in Antarctica. In Florida, in California. It doesn't matter where I go, this is 13 and 3. Everybody agrees with that, right? Why? Because this is the standard of measurement. It was established by authority, and it is consistent. Doug, would you hire me for your business if I guessed at the measurements that you gave me? <laughs> and just, ah. You said, hey, cut me something 14 and a half inches, and I went, that's about right. Would you, how, how long would that last? About 30 seconds, right? The first cut. You'd be like, what? You can't do it. It's a total, complete guess. Just like with the tape measure, listen, without a standard for living, we are left to do the best we can based on a subjective, ever-changing culture. It's a complete guess as to how to live. Without a standard, without absolutes, we have to guess at how we're to live. We have to decide for myself, subjectively, this is truth. You say, don't tell me what truth is. I'll decide what truth is for me. And, and no, 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 you don't tell me. I'll decide what truth is for me. The problem is everybody's wrong. And you try to live in that environment. And soon, chaos ensues. Both in a society and in our personal life. There's no absolutes, and we need an absolute standard to live by. How many have ever wondered, God, why have you blessed the United States with over 200 years? You know why, don't you? Because when the beginning and the men were framing the Constitution, they were basing it on what? The Word of God. And God blessed that. But how many also know that that is quickly unraveling? We keep amending things until there won't be anything left of the original. And God will lift his hand. We need absolute standards and absolute truth. And the Bible, look on the board, is God's written standard for how we should, number one, live our lives. Number two, relate to those around us, and number three, commune with our Father. Now, this is without question, without question in my heart, what I have come to believe about the Bible. 
I was convinced a long time ago that this book is special, that it is set apart, that it is holy. It is like no other book. Now, why should you believe that about the Bible? Why should you believe the Bible is the infallible, error-free word of God? Why should you believe the Bible represents God's absolute truth and standard for living? Well, I'm glad you asked because you really did. Somebody did. Let's start with some practical, non-spiritual reasons why you should believe this book is special. Now, with like any sermon, and this is going to be a little bit unusual today, the best way to stay engaged is to take notes. Get your phone out and get something. Just stay engaged. Even if you never look at it again, you will stay engaged if you write it down and you take notes. But first, the Bible is the best-selling book of all time. Over five billion copies sold and many more in print. Folks, nothing else even comes close. Nothing will ever surpass this book and the influence of this book around the world. Nobody can ever argue that. You get somebody that you get in an argument with about the Bible, they cannot argue that point. Nothing is even close. The Koran is not even number two. It's some Chinese, it's not even Harry Potter either. I thought it might be. The Koran's the Koran not number two. It's some Chinese book with 900 million. That's not even close, folks. There's no comparison whatsoever. Second, the Bible was written by authors from all backgrounds on three different continents and with three different languages. Real quickly, how many know the languages the Bible was written in? Yeah, all right. Blah, blah, blah. Somebody? Hebrew, Greek, Aramaic. That's correct. Three different languages. It contains 66 books. You understand this is not one book. This is 66 books, the canon of the Bible. Over, and it was compiled over a 1,500-year period. Here's the miracle, and here's why it's special. It reads with absolute continuity of purpose and message. From Genesis to Revelation, there is one common thread, and that is our need for a Savior. There is one common thread, and that thread is God's salvation plan to meet that need. It all, from Genesis to Revelation, it all points to the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. He is our Lord, and He is the answer. And if you read closely, you will see Him from cover to cover. If you believe it, give God praise this morning. Now we're going to dig a little bit deeper into what we call apologetics and what that means is you will be able to make an argument for the Bible being different being set apart being special being holy now ultimately that's a matter of faith isn't it the Holy Spirit if you're arguing somebody about the Bible which I think we should be able to do I don't think we should be dumb about our faith and about what we believe you should be able to know what you believe and that's what we're going to talk about but ultimately the Holy Spirit deals with that person and that's what we pray for but who knows what God's going to use in your knowledge to lead somebody to Christ and this may be the thing some people think differently than you some people are like my dad very critical thinkers and this is a big deal to them others of you are going this is I didn't need that Lord spoke to me that was enough but we're all wired differently so this is important to know 
When, when looking at an ancient document like the Bible, any document that's ancient, there are four tests of authenticity. I know this is different. I know y'all feel like, are we in a, uh, like a Bible class at college? Yes, just imagine that you are. Here we go. Four tests for authenticity. Number one, the internal test. Were the writers eyewitnesses, the authors eyewitnesses to the accounts they were writing about? In 2 Peter 1.16, we get the answer to that. It says, for we were not making up clever stories when we told you about the powerful coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We saw, everybody say saw. We saw his majestic splendor with our own eyes. And then Luke, Dr. Luke, who was a Greek who wrote one of the gospels. He says this in, in chapter 1, verse 1. Many people have set out to write accounts about the events that have been fulfilled among us. They used the eyewitness reports circulating among us from the early disciples, from those who were actually with Jesus. He says, having carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I also have decided to write an accurate account for you. And he was writing to a guy named Theophilus. So you can be certain of the truth. How many want to be certain this morning of the truth that you're basing your life on? That's what he's talking about. You can be certain. So the authors of scripture were either eyewitnesses of what they were writing about, like Peter, James, John, Matthew, or they had firsthand opportunity to witness and to talk to and to interview those who had been with Jesus himself, like Luke. So that's number one, the internal test. Number two is the external test. Those are sources outside of the Bible. History confirms the stories in the Bible. Now, you'll get pushback on that for sure. But scientific evidence uncovered in the 20th century supports many of the stories in the Old Testament and the New Testament and not one discovery has refuted the Bible. You know, evolution is a theory, right? But it's taught almost as absolute truth. It is not. It is not. It's a theory. Just like creation is a theory that I happen to believe is absolute truth. You see the the tension there. But listen to this historical scholar who's not even a Christian. Dr. Neil Gilman says, it may be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever controverted or disproved one biblical reference. That's important to know. Now, number three, the manuscript evidence test the Old Testament scribes were fanatical about accuracy because they saw their duties as divine calling. They did not have Xerox copies back then. So these scribes had to literally hand write the copies of the word by, all by hand. And so they were so fanatical and careful and accurate that if they were editing one of those copies and came across an error, they wouldn't do like what we would do. Mark, what would you, I'd mark it out right above it, you know, the little arrow. No, no, no. They burned the whole thing and started over. Why? Because they saw what they had as divine 
as special as God's word. And because of that, we have an accurate account of the Old Testament. The Dead Sea Scrolls found in 1946. Folks, that's only 60 plus years ago. That's not long ago. These found in 1946 confirm 100% accuracy in the original language. The original language, the Old Testament. Now, in the New Testament, there are 20,000 lines of text. Okay, you got that? 20,000 lines of text. 40 of those lines are under, or, or controversial. Some believe, scholars believe that those 40 lines should not be in the Bible. But guess what about those 40 lines? They hold no doctrine, and there are no stories that would change anything. None of the miracles, none of the doctrine would change at all. Even if they took those controversial lines out, nothing in our doctrine or our beliefs would change at all. That's the manuscript evidence test. Last, number four, the prophetic test. Have the biblical prophecies come to pass? The prophet Isaiah proclaims a God that knows the end from the, from the beginning. That is the true test of, of, of divinity. Only God can see the future, right? Only God can see the future and speak through a prophet about that. Jesus alone fulfills 300 Old Testament prophecies in his life alone. Now, there are many more that are yet to be fulfilled because he hasn't come back yet, right? But if those are true, how many are looking forward and have faith and know that we can look forward because he fulfilled all of these, that he will fulfill the ones about his coming again in a cloud of glory? Come on, somebody. We can have faith and use our mind at the same time. Because of this equals this. Now, for those prophecies, just eight of those prophecies to be fulfilled in one individual, the same probability of taking a quarter, dropping it out of a helicopter in the state of Texas, covering the entire state in two feet of quarters, and then landing somewhere and reaching down and grabbing the original quarter. That's the probability of eight of those prophecies coming to pass. And Jesus fulfilled 300. Here's another example. Daniel's prophecies in the late 500 B.C. describes perfectly the reign of Alexander the Great. How many studied Alexander in school? Yeah, you did. Raise your hand. You just don't remember. Well, his name isn't mentioned in the Bible, but what he did is... And specifically, the dividing of his kingdom through his generals by four, and then down to two, and then down to one, which was the Roman system of government, the Roman Empire during the time of Christ. All foretold 500 years before by the prophet Daniel. Zechariah and Isaiah both described Jesus' death down to the last detail. And listen to Psalm 22:16. Listen to this, folks. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircle me. They, listen, they pierce my hands and my feet. What is he describing there? The what? The crucifixion. Guess what? 
This is a thousand years before Jesus was crucified, and crucifixion had not been invented yet. He is describing in perfect detail something that he has never personally even seen. And then listen to what he says. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garments. How many know the story of Christ? How many know that's exactly what happened? Folks, I'm asking the Holy Spirit to deal with somebody today. There is no other explanation than supernatural. This is nothing other than God moving in history and in his word. Now, before we finish this section about the Bible, I want to give you some scripture about the importance of the word of God. Isaiah 8.20 says, look to God's instructions and teachings. People who contradict his word are completely in the dark. They're guessing. Come on. They're guessing. It's subjective. It's what I think. How many remember the show Family Ties in the 80s? If you don't, it's okay. It's fine. It was just 30 minutes. <laughs> These younger ones like, what? It's really a good show. It was a 30-minute sitcom. Big, big, big in the early 80s. And I was, we were watching it as a family one night. It's around 84, 85, something like that. I was 11, 12. Yeah, some of you, you're like really old, and others, you're going, you're really young. So I'm, I'm right there in the middle. It's called midlife. We were sitting there watching, and how many remember Mallory? She's the older girl, okay? And she was probably 18, 19 at the time. And she had a really, really serious boyfriend. And she was contemplating whether or not she was going to have sex with this boyfriend. I'm not sure how the mom found out but they were talking about it. And the mom is trying to explain to her and trying to convey to her the dangers of moving too quickly and of, of, of going to that level too quickly. And she's, 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 she's fumbling around with her words. She doesn't have the right words. She's, she's, she's just trying to talk from somewhere that there's no foundation, there's nothing. My mom stops in the middle of this scene. <clears throat> I was 10 or 11, and I remember this like it was yesterday. Parents, you need to listen to me. Your kids will remember. When the Holy Spirit's in on it, they, my God, they will remember these moments. She said, Alan, that's why the Bible is so important. She has nothing to stand on. She has no basis for this conversation whatsoever because there are no absolutes in their family. There are no absolutes in their life. There's no standard. There's no measuring tape to live by. There's nothing. And she's just fumbling around trying to give her daughter a good reason not to have sex. And she can't come up with anything because what, I mean, what reason would she have? But the word of God is clear about such things. It's black and white and it's easy and it's a foundation that we can stand on. Do you believe that? You don't have to be like this. You don't have to guess at life. Man. Let me give you another. 2 Timothy 3 says, All Scripture, say all Scripture. 
is inspired by God and useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It's like taking a light switch and flipping it on. It's revelatory, reveals. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us what to do is right. Now listen, God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. How many of you want to fulfill your great potential in Christ? Come on. How many want to walk in your purpose in Christ? You can only do it if you get a hold of this and you study this and you walk in this. And I promise if you do, you will find yourself walking in the middle of God's will. Come on, somebody. Do you believe it? It is useful to equip us to do what God has called us to do. Patiently correct, rebuke, and encourage your people. Oh, wait, wait, wait. I've skipped an important part. He said, be prepared. Be prepared, Timothy. This is Paul talking to his protege, the young minister that he's put in, in Ephesus. He's saying, he's saying, listen, Timothy, don't get up there and shoot from the hip. Don't see, just rely on your talent. Don't just get up there and and make stupid excuses like, well, we'll just let the Holy Ghost lead. I'm not going to worry about preparing anything today. Come on, that's, that makes me mad. I had a bass player friend of mine, old church I was at, unbelievably talented bass player. And he was at another church, and they gave him some charts and some videos, and he practiced those songs. I mean, he had them down. He prepared. Then he got to the church. That Sunday, and they had changed the whole lineup without telling him. They changed it all. He said, "What's, what's up?" And the the minister of music said, "Oh, we're just going to let the Holy Ghost lead." And he said, "Well, let the Holy Ghost play the bass." Is that offensive? Paul said, "Be prepared." Whether the time is favorable or not, patiently correct, rebuke, and encourage. I'm not just going to cut you up with this thing today. I'm going to allow it to heal you as well. Encourage you with good teaching. Folks, that is my job. Now, I do a lot of other things. I meet with people. I counsel we do all those things. I visit and, and, and prepare and have staff meetings and all of that. But folks, I'm your shepherd. And I promise you, if there's anything at all, the top of the list, if you want to know, it's this right here. Making sure I come prepared week in and week out to give you something that you can latch on to, that you can do, that you can study, that you can contemplate, that will help you with your life. Giving you something from the word of the living God. Can I give you one more scripture? No? Okay, thank you. All right. 2 Timothy 4. I solemnly urge you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus, who will someday judge the living and the dead when he comes to set up his kingdom. I just read that one. I'm going to finish it. Verse 3. Verse 3. Here's, now, whoa, here's why this is so important, what I just read. For a time is coming. When people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching, they will follow their own desires 
and will look for teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. Can I just tell you, we are living in that time. People are actively looking for teachers and motivational speakers who will tell them what they want to hear. Our society, our culture, have rejected a standard of truth. And that has not just leaked over, it has poured over into the Christian realm. There are many in the Christian community that reject the notion that this is absolute truth. Again, that may be you today, and I'm praying that the Holy Spirit deals with you. Because listen, if this isn't absolute, come on, come on. Let's go to the house. Let's go drink sweet tea and cook out tonight and not worry about it. If we don't believe this is absolute, and then when things really start getting tough, and this thing starts to really wrap up, it all crumbles. It all crumbles. The foundation falls away and we have nothing to stand on at all. Church, I love you too much and I fear God too much to present the Bible as anything other than God's word, the infallible, error-free, absolute standard for our life. If you're with me, give God a hand clap of praise. I want to do two more questions. I'm going to hit these pretty quickly. First, there's actually two and one, and they deal with tithes and offerings. The question is this, where in the New Testament does it mandate giving a tithe or 10% of your income. So where in the New Testament does it say we should tithe? Now this one's easy, okay? We'll do it really quick. Matthew 23, it's Jesus. He says, what sorrow awaits you teachers of religious law and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb gardens, but you ignore the more important aspects of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. You should tithe. Everybody say that. You should tithe, but do not neglect the more important things. Jesus clearly teaches here that we should tithe, but he also cautions us, reminds us that that's not the most important thing. And you will not hear me teach otherwise. I know that's weird for a pastor, but it's the word of God. He says, you, you should do this. This is part of what you should do as your duty. But don't neglect compassion. Don't neglect mercy. Don't neglect the orphan and the widow and those who cannot take care of themselves. Don't forget that that's the heart of Jesus. Don't forget that that's the most important thing. Don't forget. And see, these, these Pharisees he was talking to, they obeyed the letter of the law. I mean, the letter of the law it was legalistic and it was impossible for everyone else. But they were neglecting the most important things. And he was 
put them in their place. The second question that has to do with this is does, 10%, does the 10% tithe include giving of your time? Basically, does time count as your tithe? And the, the quick answer to this is, is no. A tithe, as described in Scripture, is always connected to first fruits. First fruits. Meaning the first 10% of your earnings, not the last 10%. Not what's left over. Guess what? If you wait till see what's left over, there ain't going to be nothing left over. Doesn't work that way. Doesn't work that way. This was always attached to the first 10%. And now in the Bible, that was... Could have been cows or sheep or, you know, uh, goats or, or who knows what, crops. But for us, that's our income. That's what we earn, the, the first 10% of what we earn. Now, the Bible is clear that this portion already belongs to God, and to withhold it is actually robbing God. Malachi, Malachi chapter 3, it says, Will a mere mortal, that's us, rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings. You're under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven, pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. Now, in our context, the storehouse is what? Conversations. The local church. The local church where you come where you are connected, where you are being fed, your family is being fed. You don't tithe to just anyone. You've got to be careful with that. Now, offerings, yes. But your tithes should go to the local church. And what does meat in my storehouse mean? It means that we'll have what we need to do the ministry that God has called us to do. I have a vision for the, the fall about raising some, some extra capital to do more ministry. We're not Anywhere near the vision that I have to reach this city. Nowhere near it. And I actually want to create a different bank account and put all of that that we raise and all of that. that so there's no confusion. I don't want any of that being used to pay for a, the light bill. Come on, somebody. I want us to do ministry like we've never done. This church has never done before this next year. And God's going to help us to do that. God's going to help us to do that. So while volunteering your time is not your tithe, it is so important. It is so, don't, don't get me wrong, it is so vitally important. It's just a different thing, okay? We need to do both because both are matters of the heart. And God will use both in our spiritual development in our life. Now I want to hit one more question, okay, before we leave. And I had the video for it, and we don't have it. It was so funny. It was so good. But here's the question. Everybody okay? Everybody all right? It's been weird today, I know. It's okay. It's all right. The official question you asked is, should a woman pursue a man or wait to be pursued? Should a woman pursue a man or wait to... And you're like, what are you doing? You've lost... I was with you with the Bible and... Kind of lost you a little bit with the tithes because I don't like to talk about that. But now you have just totally gone off the deep end. Well, listen, it may be that, it may be that, except for the woman who's in that situation. Because then it's very serious. Whether you've always been single, whether you're single again, 
whether you're a single parent, suddenly it's not funny when you're the one. In my research about this question, I came across a woman Christian blogger who was writing about this, and she said, as a 40-year-old single gal, I can tell you that trying to make the first move doesn't work, and sitting back and waiting doesn't work. Being single is just plain frustrating sometimes. Any of my single folks give me an amen? I knew you were there. So here's the question. Is there any such thing as an appropriate pursuit? Or do you just sit at home and wait on a marriage proposal? Now listen, biblically, I'm glad you're laughing a little bit. We gotta biblically we listen, we all have a clear mandate to cultivate a trust in the Lord. All of us, regardless of whether you're introvert, extrovert, male, female, type A, type B, no type, it doesn't matter. We all need to cultivate a quiet trust in the Lord, including with our relationships. But ladies, I think there is a balance between being overtly flirtatious, which I'm old school, I think that's inappropriate, and living in a hole. Look on the board. This is my experience, my, my thoughts as your pastor in studying your word and in researching this. The key is being active in a faith community. The key is being active, placing yourself with the right people in the right place. It's not going to happen at a bar. It may happen, but woo. Or at the bowling alley or with this, no. Being active in a faith community. Being friendly. Serving. Getting involved. Now, there's no guarantees. But here, here listen to me, listen. As you begin to do those things, you begin to connect to your purpose and discover your gift and begin using that gift and listen to me now listen to me there is nothing more attractive than somebody walking in their purpose and if, if somebody's just after you for, for physical appearance you don't need them anyway but so much more attractive is somebody walking in purpose Now, I know this has been short in this section, and it's kind of a pitiful attempt to deal with something very hard and very difficult, but let me give you one last thing for perspective. This is for everyone. If you are single, male or female, your number one goal is to pursue Christ, not marriage. <laughs> pursue Christ. Go after Christ. Run after Christ. Learn about Jesus. Spend time with the Lord. It's amazing how when we get things in the right order, He begins to work everything else out. He says in Matthew 6, Seek first. Everybody say first. The kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all these things 
shall be added to you. The big idea today, and I'm finishing, is goes back to the Bible. The Bible is our standard for living. If we know it, and if we follow it, it will guide us in all ways. It will answer all the other questions that you had. It will answer the question about volunteering. It will answer the question about generosity and giving. It will answer the question about dating and relationships and what to do and what not to do. It will answer all of those, those questions that we have about life, but we have to dig in and then we have to apply the word. That's the big idea. Would you stand for prayer, please?